Philippians chapter 3, please. Good morning. Philippians 3. As a preview of coming attractions tonight, the Von Kaiser family singers are going to make their debut in order to teach you a chorus with actions. So come feeling limber, do a few stretches before the meeting maybe, because uh, you'll need to be doing some actions. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count also all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the Lord will bless the reading of his holy word. Now, we've been thinking about how the Philippians had a problem with self. They tended to think about themselves too much and to act selfishly. And so, as an example, in chapter 1, Paul turns the spotlight on his own circumstance and says, Now, my situation where I'm in prison, where I've been persecuted, that could be something that could drive me inward and make me just think about myself and sort of be self-consumed. But instead, I'm looking at this as something that God is using in my life for the progress of the gospel. So whatever happens to me, I could sum it up this way, said Paul, for me to live Christ, but to die is gain. In other words, whatever happens to me in this life, because I'm walking with the Lord and because I'm seeking his will, I know that whatever circumstances happen, and circumstances always change for good or for ill, I know that Christ can use it for his glory. And what's more, even if this ends up in my death, what's the worst that could happen? They could kill me. And what will happen then? 
Well, then I'll go to be with the Lord. I'll see him face to face. What a wonderful mindset to cultivate. It really is what Christianity is all about. Walking with the Lord day by day and having the confidence in him that every wise bestowment falleth from above, as a hymn writer put it. That whatever happens in our lives, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say the Lord is using this for good. It may not be good. It may be something evil. It may be a tragedy. But as Romans 8, 28 reminds us, he's using all things for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And verse 29 tells us what the good is, to conform us to the image of his son in glory. So the Lord reserves the right to use everything, even imprisonment, as the case of Paul was, to make Paul more like Christ and bring him nearer to Christ and further the word which tells others of Christ. Then in chapter 2, of course, he addressed this problem of self-occupation. And he pointed their eyes toward the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It does not come naturally. It's not something we can work up or something we can do through some kind of meditative technique. We have to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his mind given to us by his Spirit in the Word. It's as we become acquainted with the Lord's thoughts in the Word of God, and we obey the Word and pray, Lord, empower me by your Spirit. It's you working in me to will and to do of your good pleasure. It's by that means that we put others first, that we consider the advantages of others more important than our advantages. Now, when we come to chapter 3, verse 1, there is a literary marker here that tells us he's going to change the subject. He says, finally, my brethren. And you might think, well, that's just like a preacher, you know, to say for my last point, And then when he's given you hope, he goes on for 25 more minutes. That's not what Paul's doing here. This isn't duplicity. It's a phrase really that has the expression of for the rest. In other words, I'm now going to change the subject somewhat. And he's going to talk about false doctrine. Because we may look around at our world, and it's an exceedingly pluralistic world, a world where people are very different one from another. That's not all bad. God has created people differently, made different cultures, and there are many things about that that are quite beautiful. But when it comes to spiritual belief, although we're living in a world that tells us all spiritual beliefs are equivalent, that's really a shallow way of thinking about things. Because frankly, it doesn't stand up to the test. When you examine the different religions of the world, as Brother Rex reminded us yesterday, superficially they have this in common, that they all tell you what you can do to get to God or Allah or Moksha or Nirvana or Paradise or wherever the end point is. The emphasis is put on you, on what a human being can do. The biblical God, through his gospel, says not what you can do to get to him, but what he has done to get to you. He's given his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Now, having said that there's a similarity in world religions, there's also differences. Because you go to Kashmir, for example, and you tell the Hindus and the Muslims there, it's all the same what you believe. And they're going to take exception to that. You go to the, um, the Harim 
or the Hasidim, the religious Jews in Jerusalem and in um, some of the neighborhoods around there, and you tell them, you know, what you believe is the same as what the Muslims believe. They're going to say, I beg your pardon. That's not so at all. And the Muslims wouldn't be happy with the comparison either. You tell a Jehovah's Witness person who comes to your door, well, you know, all religions are just the same. They will protest that most strenuously. Now, they're wrong in what they believe, but there are many different ways of being wrong, you see. The one way to be right is not to be smarter than the average bear, but the one way to be right is to put your faith in God's Word and to compare Scripture with Scripture and see what Scripture actually says, not what men have added to the Scripture, nor what they've deleted to the Scripture. And that brings us to chapter 3, because Paul is now going to talk about some false doctrine that was circulating among them. And it was very common in the early church that the gospel was preached in the same kind of milieu in which we operate, where there are many different religions, where it's a veritable smorgasbord of beliefs that people can choose to believe all kinds of things. So the gospel had to go out there into the competing marketplace of ideas and confront people that believed many different things. And one of the problems was, in the early church, people tried to graft some of these strange spiritual ideas onto the true gospel. But the true gospel, you see, when you try to tamper with it, you wreck it. It's not hard to do that. It's a bit like some of these computer gadgets that come out now. You know, you get your iPad and you say, oh, I'd love to take this thing apart. Well, taking it apart is one thing. Putting it back together so it works is another. And uh, the gospel is a bit like that. It's rather like this bottle of water. That if you observe this water, you say, well, that water looks very pure, and we have confidence in the good folk here at the Bible conference that they've given the preacher nice water. But if you saw someone creep in and put a drop of cyanide in this water, would you let me drink it? You say, well, we'd wait and see if you quit on time. Uh, No, 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 no. I, I have too much faith in you for that. Now, someone might say, well, Keith, why won't you drink that water? It only has one drop of cyanide. I mean, it might be 99% H2O and 1% cyanide. And if you want the chemical formula for cyanide, my brother Noad here probably can tell you afterwards, but I don't remember it myself. But would I drink it if it was 99% good and 1% poison? Absolutely not. It's that 1% that worries me. It's that that can do the mischief, isn't it? It's that which takes something which is health-giving and life-giving and life-sustaining and turns it into poison. Same with the gospel. When you add to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't make it better. You don't improve it. The old adage that too many cooks spoil the soup is never more true than in spiritual things. If you add to the gospel, you've changed it. You preach what Paul calls in Galatians 1, another gospel. It becomes something altogether different. Now, also in Galatians 1, Paul speaks about the people that were adding to the gospel in a similar way to what he's going to address here in chapter 3. And he says, there be some that trouble you. And one commentator has pointed out that the easiest way to trouble the people of God is to tamper with the gospel. Because the people of God, after all, find their identity and their unity in the true gospel. I mean, do you know how our world today is trying to come together, trying to bring divergent groups of people together? 
we have the problem that worldwide there's never been more education, more knowledge than there is now. Certainly there needs to be more, I concede that. But we're at a point in time where we're better educated and know more than we ever have as a species in the history of our planet. And yet you look at how rampant tribalism is. You look at how just in the last 20 years and ongoing, we can list off the names of Liberia and Sierra Leone and Rwanda and Bosnia, and we can talk about the problems of gangs in our own country, and we can talk about the problems in the Middle East and all the different groups there that are fighting. It's this terrible problem of people being disunified and hating one another and fighting one another. The only thing that has been proven to overcome that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says that when it comes to salvation, it's a great leveler of people. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. It just doesn't depend on what state you hail from or what country. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or solidly middle class. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or anything else about you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have salvation. He who has the Son has eternal life. And you are brought together, put together in one body. Think of that great distinction that God made from the time of Abraham on of Jew and Gentile the strongest, deepest division in mankind that there's ever been. And yet when we come to Ephesians 2, the Lord tells us that he's broken down the middle wall of partition, that wall that would have stood at the temple in the time of our Lord. And it had a sign there demarcating the court of the Gentiles from an area where Jews could go nearer. And it would tell the Gentile, you can't come any closer on pain of death. So says the, the historian Flavius Josephus. But in any case, the Lord, Ephesians 2 says, has broken down that middle wall of partition and made of the two one body. In fact, Ephesians 2 goes on to say, he's building from us a habitation of God in the spirit. Now, I appreciate the way people try to educate people about the dangers of racism and about wanting to be a good person and wanting to be nice to others and wanting to treat others kindly. But frankly, we as human beings, as sinners, as fallen beings, we don't do it consistently. The only power that can change our heart to love people that are different from us and even to love people that are like us, sometimes that's harder. But the only power that can do that is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ through his gospel to change a life. So look at what Paul says about these people. He says, I'm not going to apologize, essentially, for repeating the truth again to you. So why do preachers repeat themselves so much? Well, that's the way we learn, isn't it? It's for you, he says, it's safe. I don't get tired of telling my children, look both ways before you cross the street. Because it only takes one time where they forget where disaster looms, doesn't it? And so you tell them repeatedly and over and over again. That's the way Paul was approaching this. I have to ground you in the truth. I have to repeat the truth. I have to distinguish the error from the truth. He says, beware of dogs. He is not thinking of Rottweilers there or pit bulls. It's a term used for these false teachers, and it's laden with sarcasm. 
because to a Jewish person, a Gentile in the first century was a dog. That's what they typically called them. Now, you may be very attached to your dog. I've seen some wonderful pets here in the conference and my children have enjoyed petting them and whatnot. I appreciate that. I'm a dog lover myself. But when you think dog here, don't think fluffy, your nice little lap dog at home that cuddles up with you. This is the cur mangy stray dog that's roaming the streets, okay? That is eating garbage, that is rolling in filth. That's the idea. When they called somebody a dog, it wasn't a compliment. Like they didn't say yo dog, you know, and that was somehow cool. It was a terrible, terrible, abusive thing to say to someone. And someone who was holding to the Mosaic law, they'd look on those who weren't holding to it and they would say, oh, those people are just dogs. They don't have any moral sense. They're, they're filthy, spiritually speaking. But Paul says, no, you know who the true dogs are? The people that are spreading a false gospel. They might be the people talking the most about righteousness, the most about good behavior, the most about being right with God. But they're really the dogs. And then with their emphasis on the law, it's Jesus plus the law that saves, they would say. He says here, beware of evil workers. Now, isn't that interesting? They would have described themselves as law keepers, as people doing the works of the law. And he says, you know what they're really doing? They're doing evil because they're spreading the the false gospel that takes people away from the true gospel. So they're dogs, they're evil workers. And thirdly, beware of the mutilation, or what the King James calls the concision, because they would emphasize the outward sign that an observant Jew would take on of circumcision, and they made a big deal out of circumcision. And when Gentiles were going to be saved, they said, yes, of course they need to believe in the Lord Jesus, but they also need to be circumcised. He says, you know what? They talk so much about this surgical procedure, but really what they want to do is not make people better before God. They want to mutilate people. They are not adept with the scalpel, so to speak, spiritually speaking. They're not bringing people closer to God. So those three terms are really tearing off the mask of the false teachers. And as nice as the people who come to your door may seem, as well-groomed and well-dressed as they may be, or people that you see in train stations and airports, they're preaching a false gospel. And they're not nice people at the heart of it. They're probably deceived. That's what the Word of God tells us, that in 1 Timothy 4, it tells us in the last days, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So they're likely deceived, but God doesn't give them a pass. He says what they're doing is evil and bad, as bad as any other sin that we might be revolted by. But now he contrasts the true believers in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now we have to stop and consider why God gave circumcision in the first place. Because you'll recall, circumcision wasn't an invention of man. It was something God gave as a sign to Abraham. Now, when did he give him the sign of circumcision? Romans 4 makes a big deal out of the chronology. Because 
Abraham was justified, declared to be righteous before God in Genesis 15, verse 6. God gave circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17. Now, Genesis is chronologically written. So, 15 comes before 17. I won't do strenuous math or even strenuous history because I'm not good at math, but uh, we won't even do strenuous history this morning. We'll just note that Abraham was declared to be saved long before he was circumcised. Now, why was he circumcised? Well, you remember the problem that Abraham had to begin with. The very first thing the Bible tells us about his wife in Genesis 11, after telling us what family she came from, it mentioned she was barren. She was infertile, we would say. She couldn't have children. A great shame in that culture And yet, worse than that, if God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, you have to start somewhere to make a great nation, don't you? You need at least one baby. And if she's barren, well, that seems to be a great impediment to the fulfillment of God's promise. At least it seems so to Sarai. And she came to Abraham, no doubt over breakfast once, as recorded in Genesis 16. And in a manner of speaking, I'll just paraphrase. She said, oh, Abe, dear, uh, you know, I think the Almighty's forgotten something. And Abraham, through his beard, said, what do you think that is, Sarai? And she said, well, he's promised to make of you a great nation and to give us a child. But after all, I'm barren. Uh, But I've got a a solution. I'll get God out of a jam, you know. It's legal around here, something called surrogate motherhood. And it's legal. We know this from the archaeologists digging up like archives like the Tel El Ebla tablets. And uh, we know that it was legal to take a slave and you could have that slave to bear a child for you and that child would be received into the family as a legal heir. So here's what you do, Abraham. You take my slave, Hagar, this Egyptian woman, no offense, uh, this Egyptian woman, lovely, (laughs) lovely lady, I'm sure, and you go in unto her, and that's how we will get this child that God has promised. Well, the problem with that is that mixes promise and human effort. It implies that what God does is not enough that what God promises, he can't carry through on his own. And in fact, the moment you interject any human effort into salvation or into the fulfillment of God's promise and say that we have to carry forth a portion of the promise, what you've now done is to doom it. You've put a hole in the bottom of the boat and you are going to sink it inevitably. Because what are we human beings good at doing? Well, the last 6,000 years of history or more have shown that we are very good at failing. I know the fellow at NASA said failure is not an option, but even NASA has had their problems, I'm afraid. We are good as human beings at failing. We're not perfect beings. So by trying to help out the Almighty, this was a serious misstep. They were going into a backwater, which wasn't going to lead them closer to God. It actually would lead them away. And the Lord allowed them to do what they did, and he even took the product of that union between Abraham and Hagar and made of that child Ishmael uh, many nations. He blessed him on Abraham's account. But God appeared to Abraham and said, Abraham, that's not the child of promise. That's not how I'm going to work. And poor Abraham, he said, oh, that Ishmael would live before your sight. I can relate to that. 
I've had my Ishmael's. I've had my attempts at bringing about what I thought was God's will and what was good in my life. Things that I did, not God. And God has said, no, 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 no. You've got to get rid of Ishmael. You've got to send him away. You've got to rely on me. And the way I'm going to remind you and testify to the whole world that you have to rely on me, I'm going to give you a sign, a sign of circumcision. Now, circumcision, without going into detail, is a surgical procedure which puts off some of the flesh. And if you follow especially what the New Testament says about the flesh, and you have to be mindful of your context, because the New Testament uses the same word, even in Greek, sarks, that same word is used in about eight or nine different ways in the New Testament. So you have to be looking at context and saying, now, which way is that word being used here? But one of the more common ways is to use it to speak of human effort. That is how it's being used here in Philippians 3 when Paul says, we rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh in verse 3. It is a putting away of human effort. So if you can picture this, the symbolism of circumcision is putting off what man does putting off man's efforts, putting off that which can produce what man wants to do, okay? That's the image. Now, the great irony is, all these thousands of years later, by the time the New Testament came around, they took the very symbol that said, we're not going to depend on what we do. We're not going to depend on our efforts and our works. We're going to rely on God by faith to fulfill his promise. That is what's going to save us. And we're the people of God. We follow God by faith. They took the very symbol of faith and they made it a human work. Oh, you say, that's really terrible. I mean, those people were really bad about things like that. Taking something that God meant to symbolize the great work he had done for them and making it itself a meritorious work that human beings could do, a work that they thought gave them favor before God. Well, you know, we in Christendom aren't any better because you consider the sign of baptism, baptism which doesn't save. Baptism is distinct from the gospel. If you need a proof text for that, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, there is a link, of course, that those who receive the gospel, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, are commanded to be baptized. They are to show the world the step they have taken. And as Romans 6 explains the symbolism, baptism is saying, I died with Christ. When Christ died on the cross, that was me dying there too. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, the hymn writer said. Yes, it absolutely was for my crimes. He had no sins or crimes of his own. So he died on the cross for me. And when we're baptized, we say, I died with Christ and I was buried with Christ. And when Christ rose again from the dead, three days later, now to walk in newness of life, now to live a brand new kind of resurrected life, I rose again with him. So I'm not the same old person I was, as Brother Frank prayed. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I have a brand new kind of a life. Not the old life, dependent on me and what I do, but the new life, which is from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul says these people talk about being the circumcision party. They're the ones who want to talk about circumcision all the time. The true circumcision, the true people who put off the flesh, who put off human effort, are those who have no confidence in the flesh. Instead, we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. You know, a great marker of false teaching is that it's going to emphasize the physical. It will emphasize where you go physically. So you can go to places that are considered more holy than other. You can go to Guadalupe in Mexico or Lourdes in France or Fatima in Portugal, or you can go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, or you can go to uh, any number of shrines around the world and people say, oh, here is a piece of real estate where spiritual power is resident. If we can go to that place, if we can get down, as I've seen people do, and kiss the stones here, we'll be closer to God. Or if we can go there and bathe in the Ganges River, you know, we will be purified. They emphasize the physical. God always emphasizes the spiritual. Because as the Lord Jesus reminds us in John 4, God is spirit and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's a wonderful thing to know God through his spirit and to be able to worship him, that you don't need any physical cathedral. You can be outdoors here. And being outdoors isn't any more holy than being indoors, frankly. But you can be here in Yosemite and worship the Lord in the spirit. You can be in the most lackluster, plain-looking building there is and still worship God in the spirit. The question is, have you come to know the Lord Jesus? Do you have his Holy Spirit within you? Because Romans 8, 9 tells us that if you don't have the Spirit, you are none of His. You're not a believer. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes into you and lives within you. As the Lord Jesus promised in John 14, the Father and I will come and make our abode within you. The hymn writer put it this way, Christ liveth in me. What a wonderful thing it is to know the Lord Jesus and not have to go on a pilgrimage to see him or visit him, but to have him right within you by his spirit every day, testifying to you, guiding you, warning you, convicting you when you sin, showing you the way that you ought to walk in and empowering you to do. Now, he says about this matter of human effort, if you really want to come to God on those grounds, if that's really how someone was made righteous before God, please consider my CV a moment, my resume. You know, you can look back and I was from an observant Jewish family. They followed the law. Verse five, I was circumcised the eighth day, just like the law commanded. I wasn't a later convert to Judaism. Right from day one, my family was observant to the law. So I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I am a pure blood descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I uh, was not intermarried with the Goyim, with the Gentiles. Of the tribe of Benjamin. So I know what tribe I came from. He was from the tribe of his namesake because we know he was born with the name of Saul, named after Saul, the son of Kish, the first king of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, in between the Old and New Testaments, 
Alexander the Great came into the area and spread Greek ideas and Greek art and Greek commerce. And so Greek became became the lingua franca, the language of business and the language of education. And everybody wanted to learn Greek, just like everybody today wants to learn English, or I guess now it's starting to be Mandarin. But in any case, you know, we use different languages to communicate across different nations, don't we? They used Greek. So everybody wanted to learn Greek. The problem was some Jewish people got so excited about Greek that they forgot their Hebrew. And along with forgetting their Hebrew, they forgot their scripture. And they started to turn to Greek philosophy and Greek ideas that weren't according to the scripture. Not our family, says Paul. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. We maintain the ancestral tongue. We read the scriptures in Hebrew. Not that he didn't know Greek as well, but we kept our heritage. Concerning the law, a Pharisee, which elsewhere in the book of Acts, when he gives his testimony, he says that's the strictest sect of Judaism. So was Paul a half-hearted Jewish practitioner? No, he says. I was part of the real right-wing Hasidim. I was part of the upright ones, as they thought themselves, who were keeping all the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, plus the many hundreds, if not thousands, of traditions that the fathers had added, the so-called oral law that they believed was passed down. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So it's not like he was dissatisfied with Judaism and said, you know, I think I'll try something different. How about Christianity? No, he wanted to wipe out the name of Jesus Christ. He wanted to wipe out anyone worshiping the Lord. And he persecuted them, he says, even unto death. He gave his vote when some of them were put to death. In fact, when we first meet him in the Bible, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we're told, Saul was consenting unto his death, unto Stephen's death. The first martyr in the history of the church, Paul said, yes, kill them all, let Yahweh sort them out, okay? He was a zealous anti-Christian. And he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now notice what he says, blameless, not sinless. It wasn't that he perfectly kept the law, because if you read Romans 7, he says, the law acting upon his flesh, actually became the occasion of him sinning more. Because when the law said to him, you shall not covet, guess what Paul started to do? He coveted. Just like when the speed limit sign says 45, I say, well, that's kind of stupid on this road. This road's been engineered for more than that. And this engine in my Toyota Sienna, the Swagger Wagon, it's a high performance engine. I think I'll go 55, you know? It doesn't really matter to me. The law sort of works on that part of me. And not that there's anything wrong with the law itself, but my flesh says, no, no, I don't want to do that at all. But he says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. You can take all that religious resume, all those years of working, all those years of trying to keep the traditions, all those years of synagogue attendance and prayers and sacrifices and everything I did, you can take that all and put it on the loss column. This is for the accountants among you. You know who you are. Put that on the loss column. On the gain column, I want Christ. Now, how are you advantaged? Well, look at what he says here. Yes, I count all things, verse 8, loss for the excellence. The word is the surpassingness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
And that's about as strong a term for garbage as you can get. I mean, it may even be a little cruder than that, if you can imagine. That's what I think of all the advantages I had apart from Christ. I don't put my confidence in those things. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I say, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. That's what Paul's saying. I want Christ because in having Christ, you have more than anything else in this world put together. You have more than any other religion can offer you. If you have the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament tells us he gives us all things which pertain to life and godliness. Ephesians 1 tells us we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So this religious man turned his back on religion and said, I throw it all away and I'm just trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't save me because I was a nice guy, says Paul. God didn't save me because of the good works I did. God didn't save me because I had a righteousness which was from the law. In fact, he'll tell us elsewhere in Galatians 3 and also Romans and different places that all the law does for us is it condemns us. It's like the thermometer. It doesn't make us well. It shows us we're sick. And the law condemned Paul. It showed Paul that he was a sinner, a transgressor, one who knowingly broke a standard and fell short of God's glory and therefore was unrighteous before God. He says, no, I need a righteousness that's going to be given to me as a gift. I need somebody else to put their righteousness to my account. And God himself gave Paul a righteousness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he says in verse 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He goes on to say in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, by this time, he had been a believer for about 25 years. And yet Paul's saying, you know, I want to know Christ. I want to know him more and more and more. I already know him, but I want to know him because salvation is not an experience. It's not an adherence to a religion. Salvation is knowing a person. Eternal life is knowing God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17, 3 confirms that for us. And Paul says, I want to know his power in my life. That power that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, it's the same power working in the believer to change us. And that power won't cease until we're raised, until we're like him. Just look at the last few verses of this chapter, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. And Roman citizenship was very important in New Testament times. It opened doors for you. But he says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for a person who will transform our lowly body, the body of our humiliation, we could translate that. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I hate to say it, but some of us here at the conference, we're in bad shape. We got a lot wrong with us physically and some mentally and some internally. If we were to sit here and open it up for people to talk about everything that's wrong with these bodies, well, it would be a long meeting. 
And even if you're sitting there in the paragon of youth, you're smiling because you're thinking, ah, I was the secret weapon at the volleyball tournament yesterday. I was the one who spiked it in the face of Southern Californians and all that sort of thing. If you're thinking that you're something great physically, just wait. It goes downhill from here. You may have studied physics and heard of entropy. Things run down in this universe. Our bodies are subject to that, I'm afraid. I'm not trying to be uh, flippant. Problems of the body are very, very serious. But I'll tell you, dear one, that there's nothing wrong with you that the coming of the Lord Jesus can't cure. In fact, there's nothing wrong with you that the Lord Jesus shan't put right. And not just your physical body, but that flesh within you, that thing that wars against the Spirit, that doesn't want you to obey Christ, that battle you have to fight. When the Lord Jesus comes, that battle is going to end. He's going to transform you into a form where you're able to be with him for eternity and enjoy him forever. Now, the world doesn't have anything to compare to that. That's why Paul says, I've turned my back on anything else but Christ. I want Christ. Give me Christ. And that's really what we each need, whether we know it or not. If you don't know it today, may God open your eyes to it. That without the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no hope. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming will be no blessing to you. Rather, it will consign you to judgment for eternity. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, however, you can have the hope that he who's able to subdue all things to himself, the sovereign, all-powerful God Almighty, is going to change you and take you to glory. And nothing will stop him from doing that. Father, we're thankful this morning for the Lord Jesus. Guard us against false teaching, Father, that always makes us more self-absorbed. It puts the spotlight on us and what we do. But we want to say in this, not I, but Christ. We don't trust in what we do for salvation. We trust in what the Son has done. We trust in the payment he made. We believe him. When he says it is finished on the cross, we believe him. Now, like Paul, we know we haven't attained yet. We're not already perfected. The work in us isn't complete. So we press on. We want to know the Lord more. We want to be more used. And we look for his coming. We're thankful that that coming will utterly transform us. Give encouragement to those who are in pain today, to those who are suffering, even to those who are going through trials that may have nothing to do with the physical. Just give them hope and joy today in that prospect of the coming of the Lord Jesus, which may even be today. We thank thee in the Lord Jesus' holy name. Amen.